0: ...that I may obtain eternal, eternal life. And he said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good, but if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not commit murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come Follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieved, for he was one who owned much property. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. This is an important lesson now for the disciples and for all of us. As the disciples are traveling with Jesus on his way to Jerusalem to be offered up, We see that these are really symbolic of two very different, but very real groups of people that we offer encounter in evangelism. The Lord has already told us much about the difference between the few and the many. There are the few who come to him in humility, willing to enter through the narrow gate of repentance and self-denial. In brokenness and in contrition, acknowledging their sin, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And then there are the many who are self-righteous, most often religious externalists, convinced of their own spirituality because they do all of the rituals and all of the ceremonies and all of the things that are noteworthy of their culture. And unfortunately, these people, blinded by their sin, wander through the wide gate that leads to destruction. And these, of course, are the ones that resent exposure of sin. So first of all, we look at the mercy that the Lord extended to the infants as the parents bring them to him. In verse 13, we see that the word has spread very quickly, that Jesus is in the area. And the parents now are bringing their children to him. The original language would indicate that the children here are are the ones that would be in the range of of an infant to perhaps a toddler. And they're bringing them to him so that he might lay his hands on them and pray over them. Now, most of them certainly did not comprehend comprehend fully who Jesus was. But they did understand that he was a great rabbi, a great teacher, and they had seen that he was full of tenderness and mercy and kindness. And they also knew he was a miracle worker. So with all of this in mind, they bring their children to him. And some were even probably thinking in the back of their mind, this might even be the Messiah. Well, certainly the parents wanted him to bless their children. It was customary in their culture for the rabbis to do this. And it's customary even in ours to dedicate our children to the Lord here at Calvary Bible Church. We do that periodically. We have some new ones that we'll be doing that for again before long, where the parents come before the church with their children. And we all with the parents dedicate ourselves to do all that we can to bring up our children in the instruction and discipline of the Lord. But this didn't set well with the disciples that day. They cherished their time with Jesus. They knew that they were on the way to Jerusalem and certainly they were anxious about what was about to happen. And certainly anxiety can be a deadly foe to ministry as our thinking gets clouded with. Dread that something bad might happen, we we don't really know what it is, and we're not sure that we have the resources to cope, and so we worry and fret and so I'm sure much of that was going on with them, and therefore it's like, oh, let's don't be bothered with these parents with children, but also, the disciples were self centered and presumptuous, they were self centered in that they wanted Jesus all to themselves. But they were presumptuous in that they wrongly assumed that they were the ones that could determine who should and who should not approach the Savior. And they perceived these parents and infants as being beneath the dignity of the Messiah who had more regal activities to attend to. But it's interesting, according to Luke's gospel in Luke 19, verse 10, Jesus tells us that he came to seek and to save that which is lost. And certainly that would include these parents and their children. In fact, if you study scripture, you will find very quickly that there is a special love and a special protection that the Lord has for children. In fact, there is even an extreme retribution that is poured out against those who would harm them. They are often called the innocent ones. So Jesus says in verse 14 to the disciples, let the children alone and do not hinder them from coming to me for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Now, we've already seen in Matthew 18 that Jesus put a toddler on his lap as a living object lesson of one who is helplessly dependent, one that has no ambition, no striving for rank like the disciples were prone to do ones. That did not have the deadly fruits of pride manifested in their life. Those fruits had not yet had time in these infants to ripen on the vine and rot in the vineyard. And so in Matthew 18, he says, whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The Lord used children as an object lesson there, as he even does here. Because they have a tender and receptive heart to the gospel. Whenever you present the gospel to a child, they don't argue with you. They don't have some preconceived philosophy that would somehow parry the blows of truth with every word that you speak. They don't even deny their own sin. They don't reject the authority of Scripture. They don't complain about God's holy standards. They don't argue about His attributes. They just humble themselves. They're unassuming and helpless, therefore totally reliant. And all of these things, of course, embody the essence of saving faith. And so he says, let the children alone. Do not hinder them from coming to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Mark's gospel adds in chapter 10, verse 14. But when Jesus saw this, saw that the disciples, that is, were trying to keep them away, The text says he was indignant. In other words, the Lord was greatly annoyed with the disciples and their selfishness. As if to say, who are you to determine who should and should not be allowed to come into my presence? Who put you in charge? Who made you the keeper of the gate? In fact, in verse 14, again, we read. A very important statement, the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. By the way, this is a comforting statement, is it not? For those of us, those of you who have lost children before they were old enough to make a profession of faith, or maybe you've had children who, for whatever reason, physically are unable to make some kind of a profession of faith. Think of this, folks, even as we who have placed our faith in Christ have done so only by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. So, too, unregenerate children, though dead in in sin, can never enter the kingdom apart from regenerating grace And here we see the loving Savior extending his mercy and his grace to these infants who, though sinners by nature, and this is obvious because they're subject to death, the wages of sin is death. Though sinners by nature, now please catch this, they are incapable of either conscious belief or deliberate unbelief, and likewise, they're unable to sin with willful rebellion. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these Now, I've heard people in the past that I believe are well-meaning, but I believe are misled, who will say, well, wait a minute, because children are under the curse of the law, their salvation is subject solely to the elective purposes of God. Well, at some level, that's true, but then they will many times go on to say, so I, I don't know if you can say that all children are going to go to heaven if they die. Um, before they are old enough to understand the gospel, that's really something that God is going to sort out. Well, folks, if that were true, this text here would beg for relevance. Likewise, what we see all through Scripture is that condemnation against the lost, those who will be Under the eternal damnation of Holy God, that condemnation is always for willful sin, willful rebellion, not merely the inherited guilt of Adam. So whenever you see someone who has been condemned, you will see it was because of what they chose to do. Now, certainly they chose to do it because of the corruption that we all have from Adam But inhabitants of hell are always characterized by willful acts of disobedience. And again, these children are incapable of either conscious belief. They're they're also incapable of deliberate unbelief or willful rebellion. Think of it this way. Believers are saved by grace, but unbelievers are damned by works. And so Jesus, in his mercy extends his grace to these dear children. In verse 15, to the chagrin of his disciples, we read that he lays his hands on them. By the way, the grammar there indicates that he did so with great love and great compassion. It was not some perfunctory, mindless, religious gesture. Now, we don't know what he said to them specifically, but certainly we know enough to know that He spoke to them in tenderness. I mean, think of this here. Their creator is gazing into the eyes of his creation. These little ones for whom he would soon give his life. And I would imagine he would have said something like little one, be assured of my love for you, my special care, my provision for you. Indeed, the kingdom of heaven is made up. Of ones just like you. Such is the blessing of the Savior. And friends, I believe that He would never speak to the cursed or to the damned in such a way. John Calvin has made a very important comment on this passage that I wanted to share with you. He said, "He says, and I quote: Those little children have not yet any understanding to desire His blessing." But when they are presented to him, he gently and kindly receives them and dedicates them to the father by a solemn act of blessing. It would be too cruel, he goes on to say, to exclude that age from the grace of redemption. It is presumption and sacrilege to drive far from the fold of Christ those whom he cherishes in his bosom and to shut the door and exclude as strangers those whom he does not wish to be forbidden to come to him. Indeed, my friends, children who die in infancy, I believe, are recipients of a severe mercy as they are suddenly and divinely transported from the evils and the sufferings of this world and even the possibility of an eternal hell by being ushered Instantly into the glorious presence of the very one who has here blessed them. If I may, I want to digress for a moment. You know, as I think about this text, I believe it is paramount that we continue with the Lord's blessing on our children. Certainly, we're unable to bring our children to the Lord and place them on his lap and ask for his blessing But we can do it spiritually as we place our children in the arms of his mercy through prayer. As we bring them into his presence in the teaching of his word. As we plead with God to save them. That their lives will give evidence of their conversion and that they will serve him and enjoy him and live in the light of his presence forevermore. Folks, I really want you to hear this. Parents in particular, but also grandparents and those of you that take care of children. Those of you that are a part of the ministry of children here in the church, which is an exceedingly important ministry. Everything from those of you that work with the nursery children to the Sunday school teachers to uh, to whatever that we whatever we do with children. Folks, we want to Pray. That we will all be empowered by the Holy Spirit and that we will be faithful in teaching our children. This is how we live out this blessing that the Lord would want for them. We need to take our children and teach them the holiness of God and the doctrines of His glory and and, and the sinfulness of man. Teach them about the atoning work of Christ. We need to set before them life and death and heaven and hell. You might say, well, but they can't understand these things. Oh, baloney. They may not understand it like you do, but they understand far more than you think. We need to teach them to come to Christ, not merely to come to church. We need to take our children and we need to journey with them down the great paths of Scripture and bring them into the presence of the Savior, bring them into the presence of the King. We even need to confuse them, as Deuteronomy 6 says. With our acts of worship, with our godliness, and even as they look at communion, the ordinances of communion and baptism, we want them to say, Mom, Dad, what do these things mean? And that gives us a wonderful opportunity to teach them. Folks, we need to perplex our children with our lifestyles, with our godly music, the songs of redemption that are so radically different. From the music of the world. And we need to beg God to fill us with his spirit so that by our instruction and by our example, their conscience will have a reason to react to the spirit of God. And then as we long for the rebirth of our children, because that is the most important thing in their life. More important than being a great soccer star or a great musician or a great scholar or whatever else. As we long for regeneration to occur in their life. We look for the tiniest spark of spiritual interest that we might be able to fan that into the full flame of repentance and conversion. And when we see that, so to speak. Even as we men know what it's like to have to light a fire in the wilderness when it's cold and rainy and your life depends upon it. You get down and you nurture that little spark with kindling and you blow upon that little spark and you do everything you can to fan that into full flame. That's what we are to do with our children. And then when we experience the miracle of the new birth. Dear friends, let's don't use theological ebonics with our children. Let's don't dumb down the glorious doctrines of the faith because we think somehow they can't understand it. Sometimes I believe we expect more out of our pets than we do our children. Folks, let's teach them the nuances of election. Teach them the nuances of eschatology. Teach them the nuances of the difference between justification and sanctification and glorification and all of these things. Little by little, build into them the glorious truths of the Word of God and watch them grow to be great warriors of the faith. All of this silly stuff that we do with our kids, we teach them to pray by saying, Now I lay me down to sleep, I pray thee, Lord, my soul to keep. Folks, we don't want to leave it at that. We want to take our children before the presence of the living God and let them pray for waste cans and all of the other silly things they'll pray for. But let them pour out their hearts before God and let's teach our children to come into the presence of his glory. And as we do that, we battle for truth. We must realize, dear parents, dear Sunday school teachers, dear grandparents, we are at war. The enemy of our souls is doing everything he can to thwart the purposes of God by pouring error into our culture. And you've got to see it as a war. And we've got to learn to fight for the souls of our children. And then as we pray for that day when they come to that age of accountability, which, by the way, is nowhere in Scripture. We don't know when that age will be. It's different for various children, I'm sure. But we pray that they will be found in the election of his grace. And I would also add that reaching children in our culture, and this is why it's such an emphasis here at Calvary Bible Church. It is absolutely crucial because even though they are foolish and deception and foolishness is bound up in their heart, we know that. That has not had a chance to fully ripen, as I say, so we have a wonderful chance to reach children and we want to do everything we can to do this. Well, having digressed and in looking at our role as parents and as all of us that are involved in children's ministries, we come back to what was going on here in the text and in verses 14 and 15, we see that the Lord rebukes the disciples As he extends his mercy to these infants and he says, let the children alone do not hinder them from coming to me for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And after laying his hands on them, he departed from there. Now we see a stark contrast to this particular scene, a stark contrast from humility to pride as another very different individual approaches the Lord Interesting, too, that the disciples don't refuse him because he was rich and famous and a ruler. Isn't this often how naive we are as Christians? We would roll out the red carpet for some celebrity that comes into the church, but let a little child come in that needs the Savior. We won't pay much attention to him because this person is so much more important well, in verse 16, we read, and behold, one came to him and said, teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? Behold, here in the original language indicates shock. It's as if he's saying, whoa, look what's happening here. This, this is a, a, a young man that, that, that is wealthy, according to verse 18. Luke's Gospel in chapter 18 and verse 18 tells us also that he was a ruler, probably a ruler in the synagogue. Many consider it a welcome surprise when a person of this prominence comes along and is seeking eternal life. And, folks, that was exactly what the problem was. He was seeking eternal life, not salvation from his sins, as you will see. We know that this man comes before the Lord in sincerity. Mark's gospel in Mark chapter 10, verse 17, says that that he ran up to him and knelt before him. But my friends, although he was sincere, he was sincerely wrong. Unlike the helpless infant, totally dependent upon divine mercy, he thought that there was something yet that he could do to merit or to earn eternal life. So, like so many. He had the right motive. He wanted eternal life and he came to the right source for eternal life. But he would soon discover that he lacked the most important prerequisite for eternal life. And that is the conviction of his sin. And folks, if you don't see your sin, you'll see no need for the Savior. I think of modern evangelism Today, so often, people will again would see this and say, my, here's a hot prospect. And we want to real quickly say, well, oh, I'm so glad you asked. Repeat this prayer. Sign this card. And then after they do it, we say, oh, welcome, dear brother, into the family of God. You're heaven bound. Isn't that what we typically do? But Jesus knew his heart. And out of his great love for this man, he knew that he needed to expose the depths of this man's sinfulness and his inability to save himself. Because as we look at it, this man knew nothing of mercy. He only understood merit. And due to the deceptions of apostate Judaism... He had become, as many of them had become, a rigid conformist to all of the rules and regulations of their religion. And as long as they did those things, they were convinced that somehow they were righteous before God and that God was obligated to bless them. But folks, he was self-righteous. He had not been declared righteous due to his faith and the merciful Messiah as his Savior and Lord. And there is a huge difference. The chasm is between heaven and hell. And in verse 17, we read, so Jesus said to him, why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. In other words, he's saying, why are you seeking yet another law to obey to to earn eternal life? No one can possibly keep the law. Don't you understand that? There is only one who is good. And I am he. Do you even understand who I am? This is what is behind Jesus' words here. And by this man's response, obviously he didn't understand fully who Jesus was. At the end of verse 17, he, Jesus says, if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. In other words, obey all the commandments you've already been given, knowing full well that that particular request was an utter impossibility. Now, I find it interesting. Notice Jesus says, if you wish to enter into life, and certainly Jesus is referring to the man's desire for eternal life. I find this a very intriguing statement. I hope to help you understand this this because this is a blessed thought. Beloved, Eternal life for the Christian does not begin at death, but rather it begins at the moment of our salvation. That's when we enter into life at the moment of regeneration. What once was spiritually dead is instantly made alive unto God. That's entering into life. William Hendrickson rightfully stated, and I quote life means active response to one's environment. Life is active response to one's environment. Now think about this. For the unregenerate who are spiritually dead, morally dead, they're only physically alive. All right? They're physically alive and they can respond to their environment. And of course, their environment is the world. They are able to interact with the kingdom of darkness. They're slaves to their sin. The Bible tells us they're driven by their lusts. They serve only their father, the devil. They're physically alive to that, but they're dead to God. They're not alive. They have never entered into life. But at salvation, when we become a new creation in Christ, when we pass Spiritually from death unto life, we suddenly become dead to sin and alive to God. Isn't that a wonderful thought? In Romans chapter 6 and verse 4, the Apostle Paul tells us that at that time we walk in newness of life. In other words, when we come to a saving knowledge of Christ, we walk in newness of life. Later on in verse 6 and following, he says that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. And then in verse 11, he says, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is what Jesus is referring to when he speaks of entering into life. You see, again, for the Christian, the new birth is transformation. Suddenly, we are of a whole new essence and we enter into a whole new essence of existence. Suddenly, we are supernaturally endowed with the ability to interact and, and respond and commune with the living God. We, we begin to hate what he hates and love what he loves And we begin to enjoy Him in ways that we could have never imagined that we could before. Now again, may I say, when we are born again and given eternal life, eternal life is life that is, duh, eternal. You don't lose it. We are saved to eternal life. It's a life that cannot be lost. It cannot be forfeited. It cannot be abandoned. And might I add, for those who have been deceived by that damnable heresy that would say that you can lose your salvation, that would somehow imply that the sovereign decrees of the Father are subject to the will of man, that somehow... Christ's work as the mediator for believers is deficient and ineffective. That would therefore imply even that the Holy Spirit's work of indwelling us and sealing us and guaranteeing us for the day of redemption and baptizing us into the body of Christ, that all of those works are somehow invalid and can be rescinded and somehow reversed. I ask you. What would it take for you to no longer be your earthly father's son or daughter? What is it that you would have to do? Now, certainly you could say, well, I don't want to be your son or daughter anymore. But you know what? He's still going to be your father. All we have to do is check the DNA. There is nothing that you can do to change that. And likewise, folks, there is nothing that you can do once you have been born again, once you have been transformed, once you have been made a partaker of the divine nature, as Second Peter 1, 4 says. And I like to think of that again as all of a sudden the, the divine nature. We have the DNA of our heavenly father. Once we have that, once that we've been united to Christ Christ is in you, the hope of glory. The Holy Spirit dwells within you. Folks, there is nothing you can do to change that. Nor would you ever want to because of all those marvelous and supernatural works that are occurring within your soul. Those that, quote, lose their salvation merely validate the fact that they were never saved to begin with. So indeed, we have been saved to eternal life because we have Entered into life, we've been made alive unto God and now we live in the realm of his love and his glory and his faithfulness forever. This is why Peter would say in first Peter one, three and following that we have a living hope. And he tells us that we that, that this hope of our salvation is protected by the power of God. Well boy, folks, that's enough right there to settle it forever for me. It's protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And that's why he finally says in this you greatly rejoice. In the Greek, it's an indication that now you're just jumping up and down and yelling. Why? Because we're saved and our salvation is protected forever by the power of God. So, Jesus says, if you wish to enter into life. Keep the commandments. Now, folks, obviously, the man was surprised at Jesus' insinuation that perhaps, just perhaps he had been disobedient to the divine standard that had already been set forth in the Mosaic Law. And so in verse 18, he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said. You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, again, this is fascinating. You see, the omniscient Jesus knew that he, like all of us, have violated every single one of these commandments. I have. You have. We may not have done it outwardly, physically, but we have inwardly. This man didn't understand that. By the way, important observation here. Jesus did not quote, interestingly enough, the first five commandments, which underscore the attitude that we should have in our heart toward God. Nor did he quote the first and greatest commandment that we should love the Lord our God with all of our might, all of our soul and and so on. Why didn't he do that? Because those are utterly outside the realm of possibility for any of us to do. Instead, he quoted those commandments that were at least within the realm of possibility for him to keep, knowing full well that he hadn't even kept those. And it's sad. Here was a man that wanted God's blessing, but he did not want God himself He wanted, shall we say, the reward without the repentance. He wanted the prize of glory without acknowledging the price of divine mercy. And because he did not see his sin, he had no understanding of his need for the Savior. And as I look at this and I see Jesus' example of evangelism, I'm reminded again of the proper way that we should evangelize sinners. We must first bring them to the law. You see, folks, people will never plead for undeserved mercy until they first grasp the enormity of their sin, the enormity of their rebellion against God's holy standard. That's why it's important to have a proper view of God. That's why in any evangelistic crusade or book or whatever it is, you want to begin with the holiness of God, who God really is, and what his law is all about, so that they can compare his righteousness against their unrighteousness. And when we see that, folks, we cry out for mercy. You see, man's standard is hopelessly biased in his own favor, isn't it? When we look at ourselves, we see ourselves, even as this rich young ruler did, as being pretty good. It's like, Lord, I, hey, I've kept all these. <laughs> Give me another one here. But when we are compared to God's standard, suddenly our standard, the reality of who we are, is exposed as a superficial disgrace. And then after people have been compared to the holy standard and understand their sin, they must also be admonished, as James 2.10 tells us, that whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. Well, obviously this man didn't understand this. And again, I grow weary of the superficial Gospel invitations that are so prevalent these days, that focus on prosperity or personal merit. Come to Jesus so that you can be prosperous. Come to Jesus so that you can have purpose in your life. Come to Jesus because God has a wonderful plan for your life. Folks, all of those things utterly miss the point of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is for those who are mourning over their sin. Not merely because of the terrors of judgment that would await them, but because they know that their sin is grievous to a holy God and because they are sick of it themselves. Jesus suffered on the cross for our sins, not for our self-esteem, not for our purpose, not for our self-aggrandizement, not for our self-fulfillment. The publican did not beat his chest. And cry out to God, have mercy on me, a man without purpose. Have mercy on me, a man with poor self-esteem. Have mercy on me, a man who, who lacks fulfillment in his life. But he said, have mercy on me, a sinner. There's been a tent revival going on in our community. I stopped to listen to it for a few minutes. As once again a perspiring preacher with choreographed gestures and repetitious religious cliches that were utterly bereft of any meaningful exposition. Ranted on and on, working people up into a frenzy. And ultimately, the focus of his message was that God loves you so much that if you'll come to him, you're going to be happy. John MacArthur has well said, and I quote, to tell an unbeliever that God has a wonderful plan for his life can be seriously misleading. If the unbeliever turns to Christ and is saved, God does indeed have a wonderful plan for him. But if he does not turn to Christ, God's only plan for him is damnation. In the same way, it is misleading and dangerous to tell an unbeliever only that God loves him without telling him that in spite of that love, he is under God's wrath and sentenced to hell. Beloved, again, proper evangelism always begins with the presentation of the law and how we have violated the law. And then after that, we offer them the glorious and wonderful free gift of of grace. Well, instead of confessing his spiritual poverty and his blindness and his bondage to sin, he says to Jesus in verse twenty, "All these things I have kept. What am I still lacking?" Boy, this is the epitome the epitome of Pharisaism, is it not? Hey, I've done all these things. And certainly, this is what makes Christianity different than all other religions, all of which are false. And that is simply this salvation in Christianity depends upon divine mercy, not human merit. And again, although many people will be herded through the broad gate of good works and easy believism and will tragically travel down that broad way that they think is going to lead to heaven, what they will find is someday that broad way will narrow into a fiery abyss. But for those who have agonized to enter through the narrow gate of repentance and self-denial and brokenness over sin, those people will discover as promised that that narrow gate will someday ultimately open up into the infinite expanse of the glories of heaven. Self-deception is a tragic thing. But a horrific tragedy to think that there will be so many people someday, as Jesus said in Matthew 7, that will stand before Jesus as judge, the one who could have been their savior. They will be clothed only in the garments of their own self-righteousness. John Bunyan has well said that for some, the entrance to hell is from the portals of heaven. What a tragic thought. And so out of a heart filled with pride and self-righteous self-deception that blinded him from even seeing his sin, much less hating it. He says to Jesus in verse 20, all these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? Again, he's utterly clueless that his life is but a superficial sham. That his life is an offense to a holy God. And again, this is one of the most tell Telling marks of sin its sin has these, this amazing ability to blind people to not only its existence but its consequences. This is why it is so important to keep raising the standard before people, raising the standard of the holiness of God indeed Galatians chapter three and verse twenty four declares that the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. I might remind you that tutors in that day were people who escorted children and taught them. They were strict disciplinarians. They were consumed with teaching those children and causing children even to to come to a point where, where they not only understood the Reading, writing, and arithmetic, as you would say, of that culture, but also the values of the people. And it's interesting that many of the children longed for the day when they would someday be free from the stern custody of the tutor. And that's why that concept is used here in this verse. That's what the law does. God knew that we could never keep the law, but the law exposes the depths of our sin And causes us to long for mercy and grace that is available through Christ Jesus. But because of his externalism, because he perceived himself to be more spiritual than he was, rather than despairing of his ever-present sinfulness, he looks for yet something else to do that will merit eternal life. So again, Jesus gave him now a test to expose the tragic superficiality of his spiritual hunger. This man now who has come to Jesus wanting eternal life. And Jesus is now going to not give him a card to sign or a prayer to repeat. But he is going to expose how superficial his hunger really is. Knowing that genuine belief is always measured by. A fervent commitment to self de- <coughs> excuse me self-denial. So not to be cruel or unkind, he gives this man a test. By the way, Mark's gospel tells us in Luke 10 and verse 21 that Jesus looked upon him and felt love for him. Jesus is not trying to be cruel here folks. He's not trying to be unkind. He's not trying to be condemning in any way. He takes no joy in condemning those who refuse to believe. His love is always one that, is, that moves him to compassion, as we've learned, even when confronting the most calloused heart. So in verse 21, he says, If you wish to be complete, complete here would be a synonym for salvation, entering into that eternal life. If you wish to be complete, Go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. In other words, he's saying, if you really want to enter into life, if you really want to become spiritually alive unto God forever, if you truly desire God above all else, then you will be willing to do whatever God asks you to do. You will be willing to make him the absolute, sovereign Lord of your life? Well, obviously, the omniscient Jesus knew the answer before he even asked it. You see, this man worshipped himself. Oh, yeah, he wanted eternal life, but on his terms, not God's. He worshipped himself. He bowed before the idol of materialism. He would not part with his wealth. You see, not only was he blind to his sin and therefore his need for a savior, but he had no desire to submit to the lordship of Jesus. And folks, that is essential in genuine conversion. Obviously, he refused to repent, so he forfeited forgiveness and he forfeited eternal life. Like most seekers, he was unwilling to pay the high cost of following Jesus. Oh, yes, he sincerely wanted eternal life, but not as much as he wanted his possessions and all of the power and prestige and all that goes along with that. So in verse 22, we read when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieved for he was one who owned much property. As I was meditating on this text this week, I was reminded of a story I heard once where there was a man who was on his yacht and the yacht was in very rough seas and it was going down and a rescue ship had come to that yacht to try to help the man. They, they had heard his cries for help. And the story goes that the man had on a life vest, but he wasn't willing to jump into the water. And he also had two large satchels, large bags that he in each hand. And for whatever reason, he was hanging on to them. And later they found that what was in those bags were. Precious gold coins, antique gold coins and, and uh, silver and other jewels. So evidently they were relatively heavy. Well, the man refused to abandon his ship. And the other ship was afraid to get in too close for fear that the waves might cause damage to the rescue ship. And so they were pleading with the man to abandon the ship and to come And finally, they said that the boat just sunk out from under him and he floundered there in the water for a few seconds, still hanging on to his precious bags. And finally, he slipped into the great depths of the sea, never to be seen again, along with his treasure. What a perfect picture of what happened with this rich young ruler. May I challenge you this morning. You know, only a fool would not want eternal life. But what great treasure of sin might you have that you refuse to give up? To come and to follow Christ. Or maybe you know Christ, but oh, there's some things you just can't let go of. Maybe for you, it's some material thing. Oh, yes, I want to follow Jesus. I really do, Jesus. I want to follow you, but I I don't want to go too far because I got all of these things that are so important to me. Or, yes, I I, I want to follow you, Jesus, but my lifestyle. You see, I just don't want to give up my sexual promiscuity. I, I, I don't want to give up living with my unsaved lover out of wedlock. I, I don't want to give up certain hobbies or certain careers that occupy most of my time because quite frankly and Lord I hope you understand, but these things are more important to me than following you. I don't want to give up my reputation. I I, I don't want my family to abandon me. I don't want to have my friends reject me. But yes, Lord, I really do want to follow you. Or perhaps you find that you have some great dream or some great ambition that means more to you than following Christ. Friends, you must understand. It may not necessarily be his will for you to abandon these things, unless certainly they are sinful in and of themselves. But the issue is simply this. Are you willing? To abandon whatever He might ask you to leave. May I ask you, which are you? Are you like the infant or the infidel? Have you come to Jesus like a child in humility and dependence with nothing to offer, seeking His mercy and His grace? Or like the rich young ruler who sincerely wanted eternal life? But he didn't want God himself. May I summarize these truths poetically for you as we close this morning. Many a fool has wrongly assumed. By works I am saved from sin's dreadful doom. With arrogant tongues they foolishly say, no price is too high, I surely can pay. Show me the mountain, the journey, the path. I'll climb from that pit and placate God's wrath. But oh, that great ransom. We never could pay. Our debt is too great. What more can I say? Only a God man for sin could atone, Jesus the innocent lamb all alone. But all oh, what joy belongs to that one who pleads for mercy and grace from the Son, who cries out in anguish, Save me, O Lord, and trembles in fear, well deserving his scorn. Then, in that moment of God ordained faith, new birth doth occur by His quickening grace. The price is then paid, the penalty gone, and such is the theme of redemption's glad song. Let's pray together. Father, we humble ourselves before these glorious truths and we recognize again the glory of Your grace, the holiness of Your law, And the depths of our depravity. And I pray that each and every one of us will be willing to jettison whatever it whatever it is that seems more important to us than following you. And Lord, if there be one here today that has never entered into life. That has never been transformed by the power of saving faith in the gospel. Lord, I pray that today they will enter into that realm as they repent of their sins and cry out for undeserved mercy that will be granted to them so rich and so free. Thank you for your infinite love for us. For it's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to Pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information, or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit olive tree resources.org.